Hey, everybody, it's Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and then some. So, a lot's going on politically, huh? Now that the new Congress has begun and more women than ever in history have been seated up on Capitol Hill, I don't know about you, but I am super, super enthusiastic and optimistic and inspired and motivated and Oh, I just think it's wonderful. I'm so happy about this. This is a moment in history that I will remember. And of course, you know, we're also dealing with the government shutdown, which I know is affecting a lot of you, and it's hurting hard. And of course, there's the teacher strike in Los Angeles. So many parents, kids, and teachers are really deeply impacted by this. This is close to home in my clan. This is real close to home. You know, I can't think of anybody in our children's lives who influence them and train them to be, you know, good citizens and functioning adults and to flourish in their lives. Anybody who's more influential to our children than we are as parents, it's teachers, teachers. And they also, in many cases, you know, spend the bulk of our children's days with them, sometimes way more than parents will. And these are people who are expected to wear so many professional hats as they fulfill their roles as teachers. These are good people who are working hard and overwhelmingly effective in their jobs. And yet they're not being supplied with the resources that they need to be able to really kill it and thrive doing this important work. They're not paid enough. They're required to have too many kids in their classrooms. They're not getting the benefits they deserve. You guys, we got to take care of the teachers. When we take care of the teachers, they can better take care of the children. When we take care of the children, we've got a darn good chance of having a wonderful world and future ahead of us, right? It's kind of common sense, isn't it? So. LA Unified School Teachers, you have my support. And to one particular teacher out there, you know who you are, honey. I'm thinking about you. Um, to any of our listeners who are dealing with either this or the fur- furlough, I want you to think I'm thinking about I want you to know I'm thinking about you too. And I'm hoping for quick resolutions to all this nonsense. Um Things are really heating up in Trumpville. I don't know about you, but I'm eager to get some resolution on this. This feels like it's been dragging on forever, and I'd like to see this resolved. Um, I'm optimistic, more so than ever before, especially now that the 116th Congress has been seated. Let's see, what else? Well, the Moms Act was reintroduced, which is legislation that helps prevent women um, from some of the medical complications that can happen, you know, before and during related to childbirth. We talked about it a few months back, but now when it was introduced, um, it, so it was introduced in the 115th Congress. And when that Congress ended, you know, before the holiday, the Moms Act wasn't passed into law. So now that we have started a brand new fresh Congress, the 116th Congress, it's being reintroduced by Kristen Gillibrand. Um, And I'm really excited about it because I think it has a better chance of actually passing through uh, to become a law. 
that's how things work up on the Hill. Bills get introduced and debated. They pass through, you know, one house, either the House of Representatives or through the Senate before being voted on and then passed off to the other house. If it passes through both houses and it's approved, they approve the bill, then it goes to the president's desk to be signed into law. Now, the Moms Act didn't make it all the way through the process in the 115th. So we start again. That means that we now have a better chance because we have more time. And it also means that you have a chance of getting in on this and helping pass this important bill because you can make a call to your senator and to your House of Representatives and tell them that <clears throat> when they, uh, when this bill comes their way, pay attention to it, that you support it, and that you want them to support it too. Um, what else is going on? You know, uh, with my last episode, when we were setting our intentions, I put out a call for podcast ideas. And boy, oh boy, did I get some great ideas. Um, one listener is eager to hear more about what parents experience as they're trying to conceive. Not necessarily, you know, just while they're going through fertility treatments, but, you know, just in general. I, I think she'd like to hear, you know, about the anticipation and disappointment that can happen as you go through cycles, um, trying to conceive, stuff like that. I'd love to talk more about that. Um, that sounds real interesting to me, and I, I remember it vividly. I'm sifting through all the suggestions, and I'm starting to line up my guests so we can talk this stuff out. But please, oh, please keep your ideas coming. I'm just loving them. They're really inspiring me, and it's exactly what I need. Uh, let's see. Something fun happened to me on social media last week. Um, I am not as uh, active on social media as I should be. Um, <clears throat> may not seem like it since I'm podcasting here, but I'm a little shy on the interwebs, and um, so I'm not as active. So when something, you know, something does happen, then I make a big old deal out of myself. So Katie. Tour, who is a NBC News correspondent, and she's expecting a baby. She tweeted out, I'm having a panic attack trying to figure out a baby registry. Why is there so much stuff? What is all this stuff? How can an eight-pound human need all this stuff? Someone else replied to that. I found it helpful to read Parenting Inc. by Pamela Paul in the New York Times and to find a short list from a reliable source to wrap my head around what we would truly need in the first several months. I liked the list in Common Sense Pregnancy by Jean Faulkner. Yay! Oh, hey, that's my list that I wrote for my book, Common Sense Pregnancy. It's a pretty short list, and it it relies heavily on minimizing and simplification, getting what you need, not all the extras. Because here's what I've learned from having a house full of kids. They accumulate stuff like nobody's business, and it'll take over your house and your life. If you streamline and simplify right from the start and just get the stuff you actually need without a whole lot of extras, then you won't have to live in a house that looks like it was decorated by Fisher Price and Barbie. And you won't have to consult Marie Kondo to clean up all the mess, right? So I thought I would, I'll read you that section. It's um, straight out of chapter one, and it's a section called, How Much Stuff Do You Need? <clears throat> When you visit a baby store for the first time as a soon-to-be parent, expect to have a panic attack. Sure, you've been to these stores before. You've shopped for baby shower presents. No big deal, right? Wrong. 
Shopping for one little gift is nothing compared to shopping in preparation for your baby's life. The list of essential products, furniture, clothes, and gear you're expected to purchase is so daunting and huge that unless you have a personal shopper and a never-ending bank account, you're going to freak out. Here's my best piece of advice on that. Relax. You don't actually need most of that stuff. Think back to every generation raised before about 100 years ago, that is before commercial manufacturing, technology, and consumerism kicked into high gear. What did those parents need to survive babyhood? Somewhere for baby to sleep, a bottom drawer of the dresser worked just fine, a couple dozen cloth diapers, some blankets and clothes, and maybe a toy. That's it. These babies survived childhood well enough that they created Greco-Roman architecture, the Industrial Revolution, cars, penicillin. They survived the Great Depression, developed rock and roll. You get my point. It wasn't the stuff parents had when their babies were little that created their children's platform for growth. It was something else entirely. Somewhere along the line, we became the child-centered, consumer-driven society we are today, and marketers discovered that parents will buy all kinds of crap thinking they need it to raise a superior child. Sure, some of these products are genius. Baby wipes, comfortable baby carriers, Velcro diaper covers, disposable diapers, car seats, strollers. But an awful lot of it is absolutely unnecessary and I think creates competition, distraction, and insecurity among parents. Do you need a $1,000 stroller to help your baby go places in the world? Nope. A custom-made breastfeeding pillow to get the best latch? Nope. How about a top-of-the-line crib that converts into a toddler bed to cultivate good sleep habits? Nope. Toys that stimulate your baby's brain so he'll get into Harvard? Nope. Ergonomically designed silverware so your baby will develop manners, culinary discernment, and a refined palate? Nope, nope, nope. Here's what you need to get started. Somewhere for your baby to sleep. A basket, co-sleeper, bassinet, crib, whatever works. Just make sure it's safe. Check out safety guidelines and recommendations in baby-centered magazines and shopping guides and maybe consumer reports. Something to keep her warm. Buy enough blankets and clothes to keep her warm, dry, and clean for three days without doing laundry. Don't overdress or put too much stuff in her bed. Something to keep him safe in the car. Get the newest car seat you can afford, but don't spend too much. They outgrow them quickly. Something to carry baby in. A stroller, a carrier, a sling. Whatever's easy on your back and lets you get from place to place while keeping your hands relatively free. Something to keep her butt dry. Cloth, disposable, organic, and generic diapers all have their own environmental and economic advantages. You'll have to work that one out on your own. If you go for cloth... You'll also need safety pins and plastic pants or Velcro fastened covers. Stock up on enough to get you through three days or more without doing laundry. Some way to feed him. If you're breastfeeding, you have almost everything you need right on your chest, but you'll also need a few nursing bras and pads to accommodate your bigger, leakier breasts. If someone gives you a breastfeeding pillow, sweet. If not, use ordinary pillows and folded blankets to create your own. You may need some nipple cream, a breast pump, and a few other odds and ends to store your milk, but you may not. Wait and see. And see chapter 16 on how to feed your baby. If you're bottle feeding, you'll need bottles, nipples, formula, and bottle cleaners. Go for bottles that are BPA-free and buy enough to get through a day without washing dishes. There, you're done. 
your shopping list will undoubtedly be less austere than this one. And that's perfectly okay. A lot of the stuff you'll see at the baby store is fun, helpful, cute, and convenient. And if you can afford it or someone gives it to you, what the heck, go for it. Don't confuse the fun with thinking you need it. You don't. Don't go thinking you'll be a better parent if you have more stuff. You won't. Don't assume newer is better. It probably isn't. Use hand-me-downs whenever possible. Check out the baby consignment shops and thrift stores. Share your stuff with your friends and when you're done with it. Simplify and save your money for the things your child really needs. They'll let you know what those things are as they grow. Splurge on activities over stuff because the toys will break, but the memories you create together as a family will be there for a lifetime. And don't go crazy with the smart toys because it doesn't really matter whether or not you buy the latest electronic gadget. Babies and small children are happy with very little. On a final note, save your money for what really matters because if you're hoping your baby is going to go to college someday, that's ridiculously expensive. Let's take a quick break and then we'll answer a listener question with my favorite midwife, Chris Beard. Okay, we're back. And this week, I want to talk about premature contractions, premature labor, and premature rupture of membranes that leads to premature delivery. That word premature gets used a lot, right? So first, let's break down the terms. What's the difference between premature contractions and premature labor? Well, it's like this. Women have contractions throughout their pregnancies. Some feel them, some don't. Most women don't feel most of them, and they're not the same as the ones you have in labor. Some women do feel them, and some of these contractions feel uncomfortable. I was one of those women who could feel them, and I thought they were uncomfortable sometimes. Not always, but sometimes I'd go, eh, I feel that, yeah. We call those Braxton Hicks, and they're doing really important work of making the uterine muscle strong enough to endure pregnancy and birth. They come and go. They're not terribly predictable. They're not regular. Um, And like I said, mostly you don't notice them. Premature contractions, on the other hand, that's a, you know, a phrase that you might hear. Um, they happen during pregnancy before your 37th week, and they tend to be stronger and more regular. These are the kind that might lead you to your doctor's office or the maternity unit to get a quick labor check, see if they're really, if they mean business. Um, these kinds of contractions don't lead to premature labor, though, unless they're strong and regular enough to cause cervical change. Okay, they could be annoying as heck. They could be very worrisome, and they could be an indicator that your body needs something like hydration or food or rest or you know something. Um, but if you're just having premature contractions and they're not causing your cervix to change, then you're not in premature labor. Okay, that's what premature labor is about. It's cause it's enough contraction activity that it's causing your cervix to change. Now, premature rupture of membranes means your water breaks before your 37th week. And most of the time, that leads to a premature birth. So now that we've clarified the terms, I want to talk about an email I got from a listener um, that kind of covers all of that and a little bit more. So let's get Chris Beard, certified nurse midwife, on the phone to talk it through with us. Hey, Chris, it's Jeannie. How are you? Hey, Jeannie, I'm good. How about you? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. So we're starting out the new year. How are you? How do you feel about it? I am feeling um, I am feeling optimistic about many things. 
I thought you would be. I am too. And I bet we're going to talk about many of those things during our conversation today. Yeah. But we should start we should start out with with, you know, formal introductions. Although our longtime listeners already know who you are. Chris Beard, certified nurse midwife. Who the heck are you and what do you do? I'm Chris Beard. I'm a certified nurse midwife for Kaiser Permanente in Portland, Oregon where I am approaching my 22nd year of employment with them and will soon cross over the 26 year mark of being a nurse midwife. How crazy is that? It's a good long stretch. It's a good long stretch. I'm not surprised because I've been there right along with you and yep, that's about the amount of time, but it is a big number, you know? And I remember being, do you remember being a young new nurse and looking at the career L&D nurses who'd been at it for 26 years? I remember being a young provider and looking at those seasoned nurse midwives for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and thinking what, do you remember anything? Thinking that they just were so solid and knew everything. Yeah. And now that you're that seasoned midwife, are you solid and do you know everything? Well, I don't know everything, but I have seen a Mm -hmm. heck of a lot in my time because I have worked (laughs) everywhere from a small rural hospital to a tertiary care center to a birth center and now to a hospital with a level three nursery. Yeah, a big old uh, industry. I You've have seen, seen a lot all. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about 2019. What's on tap for you? Well, let's see. On tap for me as a person is um, trying to do more self-care. Because as a provider Mm -hmm. of care for women for as long as I have been, it's very easy to get lost in that work. And then to be a mom on top of that, it's easy to forget who you are. So I Mm -hmm. have um, put aside some time for myself this year, which I don't often do. I mean, I do lots of things for myself, but I haven't been um, as deliberate about it as I'm planning to be this year. So that is what's on tap for me. And of course, guiding my children through their various ages and stages is always on tap. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got you've got adolescents. Young I've teens. got young and mid-teens. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a busy time. So I'm curious, what does self-care look like for you? Well, self-care for me this year is going to look like um, saying yes more than I say no to uh, Mm. things like invitations to be out of town for the weekend. Like, for example, tomorrow I am driving up to Seattle and I'm going to fly to Orcas for the weekend to spend time with my college pals. And I've been invited on this trip every year for the last like six years and I've always said no because it's um, a long way to go Uh just for a weekend. And I said yes this year. And one of my very generous friends offered to fly me from Seattle to the island, which saves about five hours of travel time. So it's much easier for me to do. So I really appreciate that. Um, And so that's a saying yes. And just making time to do the things that make me feel grounded. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. when your kids are Mm -hmm. little, 
you don't really do a whole lot for yourself. And I'm a big reader and a big knitter and a big traveler. And so mm-hmm. my reading life and my mm-hmm. knitting life just disappeared when my kids were younger because I didn't really have time. And I have reclaimed both of those mm-hmm. things for myself in the last couple of years. But this year, I'm really going to make a deliberate effort to continue to hold space for me to do those things. I love that. Say yes to trips. Yep. Read more books. Yep. Knit more projects. Yep. Bringing in the fun factor. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. How about you? What's on tap for you in 2019? You know, a lot of the same, bringing in the things that um, I really love to do. And for me, that is, um, I love to swim. So, you know, that, lots and lots of that. I love to read. I love to travel. I love to camp. I really love being outdoors in nature, geeking out about birds. Now, I don't want to be a bird expert. I really don't at this point, want to do all the research and know all the names and their habitats and all that. I just want to be outside watching them fly or, you know, wherever they've landed. It's just my, that's my fun factor. So that's great. Yeah. 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 That's for me. Well, let's talk about politics for a sec. How about that 116th Congress? How are you feeling about it? How about that? I am feeling great about that. I am so happy to see the Congress reflect who we are. Who's out here? Sort of. I mean, we still only have, what, 24% representation of women? Isn't that Well, I didn't know it was that low, but it sure feels good to have more. I know, I know. But when you look at the whole spread, women are still only, we're less than a quarter of the house. Darn it. Yeah. Yeah. Still big step forward. Big step and when you forward. Look, yeah. And more diverse than ever before too. Thank the Lord. Yes. That is a, that is a thing to be grateful for. And yeah. I think it's, you know, we owe the credit to people like you and me and all of our friends who pounded the pavement and got everyone we know to vote. Yep. It's the power it's of the people. The it's about the vote. Yes. It's about the vote. Yeah. It's also about all of those women being willing to stand up and run. Yes. That takes sheer bravery and courage, you know, because I think that probably the number one reason why most of us don't run is because we're afraid of the scrutiny and we're afraid of being picked on and bullied, which, you know, seems so much what the process is to get elected to public office. And I applaud these women for saying, you know what, so what, I'm doing it anyways. And I, 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 I'm just, I'm stunned by it. It's wonderful. It is truly magnificent. Yeah. Would you ever consider running for office? I don't think so. How about you? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that that's, you know, when I try that on, it doesn't feel like the fit for Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. You too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if there was, like, if you were really thinking big and there was one piece of policy that you'd like to see passed that would provide the most benefit to women and parents, what do you think it would be? It doesn't have to be just one thing, but what would you really like to see? Well, in my dreams, I'd like to see single-payer health care. 
health yeah. access, healthcare access for all people. Um, yeah. And they do it in the bulk of the rest of the developed world. So we know it's possible. And mm-hmm. I work for an HMO, which is kind of a mini version of single payer healthcare. And um, I've gotten exceptional healthcare as have my children. So I'm a big fan. Yeah. So I think that would be my, that would be my dream is for that I think would benefit many, many women and children in single payer healthcare. Me too. Same one. Either that or um, nope, that's it. You know, uh, universal access to education and not just, you know, elementary and high school, but college, that's right up there for me too. But healthcare is a bigger priority than even education. Well, there's certainly both high priorities. Yeah. They are. They're really high priorities. And wouldn't it be wonderful we lived in a world where our representatives said, not either and, or. Both and. Both and. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We live in a country that could actually do it. We could actually provide health care and education um, for everybody who wants and needs it. We really could do that. It's not an impossible thing at all. Yeah. 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 Well, um, let's shift gears. I got an email. I'd love to answer it with you. Okay. We're going to leave this, um, listener's name and city out of it because like so many people who work in the healthcare industry, she doesn't, um, Oh, I lost one of her workers to ID her. Now you're here. Oh, am I there? Do you hear me? Okay, sorry about that. Um, What I was saying is that like a whole lot of people in the healthcare industry, they want to talk about what they're going through, but they don't want to be identified by their Ah. their coworkers. Yeah, so we, I know, I know it's it's really common, Mm -hmm. especially with nurses. um, Yeah, healthcare administrators. It's pretty pretty interesting. We could talk about that, but let's read the letter. Um. Okay, our I listener am not hearing writes, I love your pad- podcast and overall platform. I enjoy how you weave in current issues and also address common sense pregnancy topics. I've learned so much and was hoping to get your thoughts on my current situation. Some background. Uh, I work in public health, am currently pregnant with my second, and I like to stay up to speed on the latest in education, especially around prevention. Despite having zero risk factors and taking extremely good care of myself, my water broke at 33 weeks with my son, and I delivered him three days later. It was very hard for me to come to terms since I did everything so textbook and was told that I was a very low-risk patient. Around 26, 27 weeks, I started reporting concerns about frequent and strong Braxton Hicks contractions, but I was dismissed. Not having an answer as to why my water broke early has been tough to deal with and is haunting my current pregnancy. I am almost 23 weeks pregnant and started having some Braxton Hicks again and am terrified that my water could break even earlier. When I contacted my doctor, I was told that they don't worry about premature labor prior to 24 weeks, which was troubling to me. I'm getting weekly progesterone shots, but beyond that, they say there really isn't much I can do to prevent preterm labor. Still, I've read that Epsom salt baths, 
the magnesium sulfate, can help. And there is some limited research about probiotics promoting better gut health and potentially reducing risk of infection. I'm an extremely active person, but have reduced my activity to walking, yoga, and bar. Anything else I can do? I wish I felt that my care team was more attentive to my concerns, but it's too hard to switch at this point, and they are associated with the high-risk group. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. There is a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Well, I'd like to talk about her first birth, since that's... um, that's what she knows at this point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, preterm birth affects a lot of people uh-huh, in this country. Uh-huh. And there have been many strategies over the years to try to reduce the preterm birth rate. And they've had pretty limited success. Um, and mm-hmm. what we know is that um, preterm birth is a pretty big deal for the for the people who are experiencing the preterm birth. I don't know what the actual statistics are, uh, but I did some exploration about premature rupture of the membranes and premature mm-hmm. rupture of the membranes before 37 weeks affects about 150,000 women a year. So that's a lot of people. Um, are you talking about just in the, in the US? US? I'm sorry. Yeah, I should have clarified that. Yeah. 150,000 women a year, women and families a year in the in the US. And there are some risk factors. Um, mm-hmm. but not all of them are things that we can mitigate. What are some? Well, of some of the risk factors for preterm birth and also for preterm premature rupture of the membranes. I think that's how you I think that's the current lingo, is um, having a prior mm-hmm. preterm birth puts you at risk for a preterm birth. Mm-hmm. Having some sort of infection, either known or unknown, mm-hmm. um, smo- and smoking cigarettes. Those are the main mm-hmm. things. Yeah. I'm betting that this listener did, doesn't I smoke. I would bet that I, as well. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Just the way that she describes herself. I, I would bet that that's not it. So if we take that off the list, um, <clears throat> it's possible that she has an infection, though it would surprise me if she was in a traditional healthcare system that they would not have already tested for something. You know, and she said she spoke with a doctor. Correct. Yeah. And, it, you know, it would be when I think of preterm births that are caused by infection, I think of infections that are sudden onset and, you know, so they just bloom and boom, that baby's got to get out of there. So the body knows time Mm -hmm. to break that water and get this baby out of here, Mm -hmm. you know, wouldn't be something that you would be a chronic carrier of, I wouldn't think. Right. Um, And you, people feel bad when they have an infection, you know, they, they get malaise, they get a fever, they just don't feel well. Right. Um, So you know, preterm rupture of the membranes is just kind of bad luck. You know, it's like getting struck by lightning. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing It's nothing that you did or your provider did or anything that you can do anything about having your water break early. So what about this part where she says, you know, around 26, 27 weeks, I started reporting concerns about frequent and strong Braxton Hicks contractions, but was dismissed. So first of all, let's, for, you know, some of our listeners aren't familiar with the 
term Braxton Hicks contractions. Do you want to you want to give that one a go? Sure. So Braxton Hicks contractions can happen basically at any point in pregnancy and the uterus is a muscle. So it's the uterine muscle practicing for labor. And you know, the traditional understanding of Braxton Hicks is that they are painless contractions. So you mm-hmm. you're pregnant and you're going about your day and you're suddenly realizing, oh, my uterus is really tight or my tummy is really tight. And then, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. 15 or 20 minutes later, you feel that again. That would be a Braxton mm-hmm. Hicks contraction. Whereas mm-hmm. a labor contraction is usually painful and it's, yeah. it's not a contraction that you, that you easily ignore. Whereas I think Braxton right. Hicks contractions are, Braxton Hicks contractions are usually fairly easy to ignore. So I, <clears throat> I, I mean, we're going to just have to kind of do a lot of guessing around what might have happened for her. But, you know, if she started reporting feeling contractions at 26, 27 weeks, you know, in in our practices, what probably would happen is she'd be called into the doctor's office or the maternity unit, and she'd be monitored for a little while. And she might be, um, you know, she might have some tests run. She might have a vaginal exam. Um, and, and they, you know, that's, they take a good look and see where are we at right now. And um, am I, should, do you want to add anything to that? Am I about right? Yeah. And they can sometimes do something called a fetal fibronectin, uh-huh. which is a swab of the discharge in the vagina. And it tests for a substance that if it's present, tells you you have a high risk of having a preterm birth in the next two weeks. And if it's absent, that you're pretty sure you're still going to be pregnant for two more weeks. So I'm, I'm going to guess that she probably was checked out like that. So there may not be a connection between those strong Braxton Hicks contractions and her water breaking at 33 weeks. I mean, there might be, but there might not. Right. Yeah. What's because more Braxton con- Hicks are a normal part of pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. And everybody's perception of them is different. You know, some right. people start feeling them really early on and some people don't feel them at all. Right. But we right. know they're probably there because that uterus is preparing to do its job. Mm-hmm. What really concerns me, though, is that she felt dismissed. I know. I hate that part. Me too. And that is so, so common. Now, I know that feeling of worry. You know, when you have that feeling that just this is just doesn't feel right. Now, she may have identified that she was having Braxton Hicks, but something about it didn't feel right to her. And she reported it to her doctor or, you know, his or her practice. And she came away from that experience feeling like just dismissed. She didn't come away feeling reassured and strong and confident and understanding what was going on. She felt dismissed. Yeah, that's a hard one. And yeah. You know, I think, I think for myself, if I had an interaction with a patient and she felt dismissed, I, as hard as it would be to hear that, I would want to hear that. Yeah. I would want to hear somehow that 
you know, gee, last time I was here and I was talking to you about X, Y, and Z, and I didn't really feel like you heard me, that would make Mm -hmm. me sit up and take notice. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, that pregnancy is now gone. I mean, it's, it's, it's completed and she's got that, that child. And now she's got another pregnancy and she's not feeling confident in her care team in this pregnancy either. No, she's not. And yet she's at this point where she feels like it's just, you know, she's already in the process. She's in the machine. It's too hard to switch gears right now. You know, the whole care team is already in process and she doesn't want to switch. And I get that. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, especially if she's in 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 an HMO situation, you know, similar to one that you work at. I mean, there's probably certainly mechanisms for how she could see a different provider, but she's already in the system. Mm -hmm. What to do? Yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, I would encourage her to, um, to try to talk to her provider and say, you know, I had a preterm birth. The last time I had a baby, I was very surprised Mm -hmm. by that. And I want to do everything possible to not have a preterm birth this time. And I don't feel like you're listening to me when I'm sharing my mm-hmm. worries. And it may be that in that system, there are other ways for her to get support for her worries besides mm-hmm. from the provider. You know, our, in our system, we have a medical social worker and yeah. um, we also have midwifery care. And so <clears throat> one of the hallmarks of midwifery care is that you, you do have a different kind of listener Um and I've had patients in my, in my practice over the years who I know need more than the allotted time of their appointment. And I usually mm-hmm. work with my assistant to say, you know what, let's put this patient at four o'clock because my day ends at five and that way I can mm-hmm. spend the time that I need with her. Right. So I think right. it, and, it, it's, and scheduling is a big factor here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, I don't want it to seem like, you know, doctors aren't going to give you any time and midwives and social workers are, but that's the way that doctors are scheduled and it's tied to, you know, how they bill and expectations for meeting certain income levels. It's all tied together. There's not really an easy, easy exit plan on mm-hmm. that. Um, midwifery is a different model entirely and more time is built into it. So in some practices, especially if the midwives and um, obstetricians work in partnership, that's a real good option where, you know, she's considered high risk. So she's going to be seeing the obstetrician, but she also needs more information and more dialogue and more communication. It might be a real good idea to team up with a midwife in that practice as well, if that's a possibility. I suspect that she's probably in a perinatal practice, and you mm-hmm. know, it, the perfect model for high-risk moms is to have a perinatologist and midwife working together, because the perinatologist can manage the medical stuff, and the midwife can mm-hmm. manage the more. Um, emotional and social aspects of pregnancy. And there is yeah. a practice like that. Which come up for in Eugene, or there used to be. Um, yeah. But it's not a common model, unfortunately. I think it would be a great one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be, be ideal. But um, I think that our, our 
listener is somewhere mm. in a big city in the middle of the country, probably has access to that model. But what if she didn't? What would you recommend that, you know, someone who lives in an area where there are fewer choices, what would you recommend that they do? Well, I would recommend that she educate herself as much as she can. And if there aren't mm -hmm. choices for providers, there are all kinds of online and in-person support groups for people. Um, mm -hmm. And that might be a way to get some of her, um, her concerns heard. Um, and mm -hmm. she, I still think she should have a conversation with her provider. That's um, what I think too. And that's, I've, I feel like that's the number one yeah. thing that should happen because that would get that provider's attention. Every single provider wants to, intends to, and probably thinks that they're doing a rock and hot job. That's the most truth. of the time. Yep. You know, most of the time. And when we have a patient say to us, Hey, that's not working for me, or that sounded, you sounded kind of, you know, short with me or something like that. It's a check and you go, oh, gee, yikes, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that to do that. Was not, yeah. Yeah, that was not my intention. And it's a, it's a wake-up call for us and we need them. We need them. And I'm going to guess that, you know, we hear all day, every day, women um, tell us about their physical symptoms of pregnancy and, um, and we don't always hear the nuances of somebody that is really concerned about what's going on for them. Right. Because every, everyone's concerned right. and most people want to be reassured that that's normal, but some people mm -hmm. due to their history or due to their personal circumstances are more concerned and they don't, they need more, they need a different kind of reassurance. Right. If that makes sense. It does make sense. It does. And sometimes that different kind of reassurance comes with more interventions and testing. And sometimes it comes with more time spent with professional handholding. You know, I think that there's yes. a real, real value to being able to say, you know what, I'm feeling worried. I'm going to make a quick phone call, getting the provider or his or her assistant on the phone and saying, what do you think? Does this seem right? Yeah. Seems okay. Okay. Can I call you again tomorrow? Thanks. That's a safety net, an emotional safety net that I think um, we need, we really need. Especially people who have had an unexpected, yeah. less than optimal outcome the first right. time. Right. That's yeah. their baseline. Yeah. So, so they're going to worry. She, yeah. She's 23 weeks and she's starting to feel the squeezy contractions again. And she's terrified that her water mm -hmm. could break even earlier. And she was told that they don't worry about premature labor prior to 24 weeks. That's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard She's thing worried to hear. about it. She's very worried about it. And for darn good reason. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think that she should know? Well, right I now? think she should know that, um, that, Premature rupture of the membranes and preterm birth is like lightning. Mm -hmm. And we hope that, um, that this pregnancy continues past the 36 week without incident. Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that she's doing everything she can. Mm -hmm. Um, to what do you think about the weekly progesterone shots? 
Well, I think that, um, you know, from my understanding, preterm labor and delivery is a little different than premature rupture followed by labor and delivery. And I know that they do progesterone shots. They offer them to people in our practice. The evidence isn't um, super strong, but it's um, it's the it's the only thing we got. Okay. Absolutely. What do you think about it? Um, I don't. Yeah, I I feel like if you're in a situation like this woman is, and there aren't a lot of options out there, um, that's an option that I might want to take. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you have to make that decision not based on just one perspective, but you need to have a good conversation and figure out the pros and cons and make a decision together with your team, Mm -hmm. which, you know, that's where you got to do your homework. And then you go with your gut, you know? Some women would say, yeah, I don't feel good about that option. It doesn't feel right for me. Other women would say, give me all you got, baby. Can I come right now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Can I come right now? I'll be now? right there. Yeah, yeah. What about um, Epsom salt baths? That is not something I have ever heard. I never have um, either. We do use magnesium to slow preterm labor in the hospital. Right. Um, IV drip, not in the bathtub. Correct. Right. So I've not heard that one. I don't think it's going to hurt you. Um, whether it would help or not, I, I can't say. Yeah. Might feel good. I mean, don't go too hot with the bath water, but, and it might, it might really make you feel good. I mean, sometimes when you're feeling those, those strong, squeezy contractions, they do kind of hurt because there's ligaments, there's muscles, there's, you know, it's achy, it's stretchy. And there's no room. Right, right. Babies are big. Bodies are small. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes a a warm bath, a little Epsom salt, that sounds kind of nice. Yeah. That sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? pretty (laughs) relaxing. Yeah, I'm going to think about that myself here. <laughs> yeah. Probiotics, got anything to say about that one? Um, I'm a big fan of the microbiome and probiotics. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. that there's a direct link to them showing any benefit for preterm labor or mm-hmm. preterm birth, but I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot we don't know about the gut. And um, I... I take probiotics myself, so I wouldn't stop someone from taking them. And a lot of the times when we say, you know, we, there isn't a lot of research, it, it's because we haven't invested a lot of you know, federal funding and grant funding into researching what is considered um, non-mainstream or alternative healthcare practices. That's not to say these things don't totally work. It's just that we haven't invested in researching them, you know, and, and finding out the data. Right. <clears throat> right. Uh, activity. Let's talk about that. She's reduced her activity to walking yoga and bar, which is ballet exercises. That seems about right. That seems about it? right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think yeah. as your body grows, you have to, you have to adjust your activity and, you know, people who listen to their bodies modify their activity appropriately. So she's, she's listening to her body. And I think that sounds fine. Yeah, that seems about right to me too. Yeah. And since she's already, you know, sort of, she's feeling uncomfortable, you know, either either the Braxton Hicks are making her a little uncomfortable or, you know, this whole thing about the potential for another premature birth is making her uncomfortable. Yeah. When you're feeling like that, no need to push it hard. 
just go easy on yourself as best you can. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Well, I really hope that we've answered this listener's questions. You know, we we never, you know, say this is what you're supposed to do. But I do love kind of bantering back and forth and just picking it apart and saying, hey. And, you know, for me, I I would worry too if I had had, you know, a preterm birth and was feeling unsure of things with this second birth. I would I would be a worrier too. That said, I think the most important piece of this puzzle is for her to have a really important conversation at her very next appointment with her provider and maybe even set it up with an email. You know, most most providers these days are accessible by email. Somehow through their patient portal, they can get an email. And, um, you know, that might be a good way to start and just say, hey, I need more from you than what I'm getting. Absolutely. And that provider will almost certainly say, oh, wow, thank you for telling me that. Let me see. Let's work this through. Because the provider wants to, you know, it's their goal to give you optimal care. And it's their goal to shepherd you through this experience in a safe manner. So if their response feels too glib or it feels like they're not hearing you, um, those conversations are not easy, but I think they're really important. You know what comes to mind though, Chris? Something that might be happening in this provider-patient dynamic. <clears throat> this this listener mentioned that she works in public health. And I don't know in what ca- capacity. That's a pretty wide field. But it's possible that her provider is making an assumption that since she sort of works in the industry at in whatever capacity, that she may know more than she actually does. And that is very true. Yeah. I know that I have gone into my own healthcare experiences and providers have said, oh, she's a registered nurse and she works in this field. And they haven't told me everything that I needed to know because they kind of thought I probably knew it and they didn't want to talk down to me. And I know that that happens. And so I've gotten really good at saying, okay, wait, let's back this way up. This is, I need to know more. I need to have this addressed. I need to, and then they go, okay. And you kind of work out your relationship. Here's what she does know. Here's what she doesn't know. Here's what works for her. Here's how she listens. You know, you work it out. Yeah. 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 Well, listener, I hope this helps. I hope you're going to send us an email and let us know how things work out for you. Yeah. So Chris, what do you think? Anything else you want to talk about? Um, I don't know. I think I'm good. How about you? Pretty good. Yeah. We've been out this a little while. Well, got a new answer for me on our fill in the blank. Nobody ever told me that. Oh boy. You always ask this and I keep forgetting. Uh, I know, Chris, I always ask you. (laughs) Nobody ever told me that. Mm. I can't give you the same answer twice, can I? Yes, you can. You can say okay, anything. Nobody you want ever to. told me that providing women's health care would be so political. And there being a midwife would be so political. Yep. And where in the world are you in the world of motherhood? Well, in the world of motherhood, I am shepherding my older teen through um, beginning to think about college. 
and I am preparing my younger teen for uh, a capstone trip to China. Wow. So, yeah, she's going to China in April with her class for two weeks of capstone study after being in the Mandarin Immersion Program for nine years. Do you get to go to? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Do you get to go to? Um, I do not get to go. I I do not choose to go, I should say. Um, I'm not sure I can say this on your pod, but I don't like other people's children. So I decided I'm not the best chaperone for this trip. (laughs) Oh, honey, I get it. I get it. (laughs) It's one thing if you're going to go to the museum with them for three hours and there's 15 or 25 or 100 kids all in a pack together. That's one thing. You know that there's an end game. There's an end time. You only have to be a model parent (laughs) to other people's kids for a short window. Yeah. But for how long? In a foreign country. Yeah. Yeah, maybe 16 days in China. So I participated in helping the chaperone selection committee vet and interview and choose the parents that they chose to go with them. So I feel really good about the people that they chose. Mm -hmm. I know my my daughter and her classmates are going to be in exceptional hands. Mm -hmm. And this is a really great opportunity for them. My my older daughter did this trip uh, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And it is really a sentinel experience. I mean, she came home a different kid in a good way. You know, Excellent. she was just more confident and more mature and more just, it was really great. So I'm really looking forward to my younger daughter having this opportunity because I know how great it's going to be for her. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. So that's where I am. I'm shepherding one to college and one to China. And I hear your phone ringing. So should we say goodbye? We should. All right, Chris. It's good talking to you. Let's catch up soon. Thanks again, Jeannie. Okay. Bye. Okay. That's it for this week. Our guest today was Chris Beard, Certified Nurse Midwife. You can email me your questions and ideas at jean at jeanfaulkner.com. That's J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. Tweet me at Jean Faulkner. Find Common Sense Pregnancy on Instagram and Facebook. And go pick up a copy of the book. Read about the list and then some. Common Sense Pregnancy is available over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com, on Amazon, at Target, wherever you buy your books, at your neighborhood store. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. That's it for this week, folks. Talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.